Hello and welcome to No More Questions. Thank you for choosing to spend this time with me. My name is Clemence Bois and I'm so pleased to introduce you to our show. Today's No More Questions episode is more than just a little special. Not only because our guest today is very special, but also because it's going to be the last No More Questions episode for a while. That's not to say that this is the end of No More Questions just yet, uh, or even like the end of the year, um, but... I will be back in the studio to deliver more episodes between May and June, but I can't really give you an exact date as to when yet, um, which I'm sure you'll relate to or think back to a time where you related to um, the fact that this all goes back to how revision goes for my exams. Um, but in any case, this is not the last time that you hear this intro. Before telling you how much Normal Questions means to me and how happy I am that it means something to you too, I want to introduce today's guest. In fact, I'm not even doing it because I have to. You know who Sophia Smith Gaylor is. Maybe because you've read her articles, or because you've read her book, Losing It, or because you've seen her work at the BBC World Service, or because you've seen her TikToks. She's the lady with the headband that teaches you about linguistics, ethics, health, culture, and politics. Regardless of where you first became familiar with her work, Sophia is one of the leading digital journalists in the world, and she's credited with being, as you'll hear her talk about, the person who introduced TikTok as a form of journalistic storytelling. And as you know, tech is an important part of the discussions that we've been having on Normal Questions so far. So we'll obviously expand upon this and the interview that you're about to hear. Sophia is also the specialist of questions that have to do with religion, gender, reproductive rights, as well as ethics, linguistics, etc. With this very impressive resume, I wanted to talk to her about all the things that make up her career and her perspective on what she's done so far. The result of this was an incredibly dense conversation, one that I think is fascinating and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. So without further ado, this is Sophia Smith-Gaylor on No More Questions. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, to start with, could you tell our listeners a bit more about your career so far and what your current occupation is. So I am a journalist, author and TikTok content creator. I'm currently a senior news reporter at Vice World News. Uh, I work from our London office. Vice is, of course, an American news organization. And prior to that, I spent a few years working for the BBC in a couple of different roles, but mainly as a video journalist in faith and ethics, as well as doing a bit of reporting across tech and digital culture. Yeah, thank you so much for that introduction. Um, so obviously, as our listeners, I think will know, you've been credited with pioneering the use of TikTok for broadcast storytelling and reporting in journalism in the UK. Um, do you think that now that people have caught on to what you introduced to them and to that type of digital storytelling, do you think that it's being used appropriately by British journalists? We know that news outlets and news publishers are now taking it seriously, generally speaking. So about 49% of the world's biggest news publishers now have some kind of presence on TikTok. That's right. going off research from the Reuters Institute of Journalism. Mm -hmm. What I would say is obviously there is a big variance in how successful those those different accounts are that come from the news brands um, but in terms of people like me so news creators or individual journalists who just as we have long done with twitter 
may have built their own personal TikTok account, they're still very few and far between. So if you compare what it was like when I first began three and a half years ago to now, there isn't actually that much of a difference in terms of yeah. the pool of, let's say, British journalists who are on TikTok tiktok is pretty much the same journalists who are making content for their news organizations tiktok accounts we're seeing a lot of that so i wouldn't say that there aren't journalists who've picked up the skills because they certainly have done um mm. what we haven't seen are necessarily um journalists being encouraged by news organizations to develop their own personal brands on their own tiktok accounts you know we're, we're very yeah. much seeing news brands wanting to take ownership really of that on their yeah. brand accounts yeah absolutely in the same way that in a lot of other fields brands more so than individuals are now reclaiming the space on tiktok as well um so i guess that prompts the questions what drew you to tiktok in the first place I was a video journalist at the BBC at the time. I was conscious that maybe I would need to cut video for TikTok as I was mm -hmm. cutting video for every other platform. And that is what drew me in the beginning. Uh, it was quickly visible how, um, how massive and growing the audience was on there, that there wasn't much of a saturation of content from people who knew how to tell stories in a sort yeah. of way informed by journalism ethics and stuff like that. And that th I identified a gap that could be filled as did a couple of uh, the other British journalists, Max Foster being one of them yeah. who were quite early to, to come onto TikTok, Emma Bentley. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just kept, I got this reassuring feedback loop from people who would find me on the yeah. For You page and keep following me. And that's what encouraged me to keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, I remember like two or two and a half years ago watching your videos on linguistics and like I keep, I, I still watch them now, but yeah, I get what you mean about, I think you just mentioned as well in another interview about finding ways to sort of loyalize or fidelize your audience on social media, which is something that maybe some other media personalities who were trying to get uh, on the bandwagon weren't necessarily doing at the time when you started as well, which is really interesting. Yeah, I think for me, I've never expected people to kind of find my work on the internet yeah. and amongst all the other things that they do um, in the same way that I certainly do not necessarily find all the things I am interested in on my mm -hmm. online journeys because of how busy it is and how many things are trying to grab my attention. And I had that attitude while working for the BBC, which is obviously one of the world's best known, if not the world's best known. Yeah. Uh, news brand, like legacy media brand, and you can see firsthand when you work there how, for example, younger audiences are not engaging with a lot of their content. So for me, I've always it does it's irrelevant of whatever newsroom I've worked for, or irrelevant of if I'm working in my independent TikTok capacity, thinking about content to make. I never assume that someone's just going to find it because of who I am or who I work for. Yeah. Like, I have an attitude where I feel like I really have to work hard every time I make content um, so that so that people may find out about it. And um, yeah, you build this relationship over time. 
uh, and it's just paid huge dividends for me. Like I'll have people message me sometimes with stories, even today, you know, I've just like reached out to some Instagram followers about hmm. a- another thing I'm looking into and I've had a few replies there. Um, it all just builds into this general community around my reporting that's now quite platform agnostic. You know, yeah. I have people following me on Twitter, on TikTok, on Instagram, that w- whichever tool is the most useful, I can deploy it to kind of help me with my job. Yeah. So um, it's definitely been very important for me to establish that direct relationship with people who may consume my content that is separate to um, the existing platforms yeah. that my employer may have. Yeah. And I think it's really, like, it's a huge asset and it's really effective as well. Um, And actually, that's the perfect segue into my next question. Uh, So you've worked, uh, obviously, on a lot of different mediums. And last year, you released a book called Losing It, Sex Education for the 21st Century, which is a brilliant mix of social research and personal testimonies. And you were just talking about having and fostering conversations with your audience and getting a sort of community aspect in your work as well. And so going back to the book and the testimonies that you got for the book, how did you go about setting them up and conducting these interviews? Ooh, so I did a few call outs on my personal social media, but the majority of it, I would say, was from searching content online and going through rabbit holes. I'm thinking in this regard, particularly of people with personal stories as opposed yeah. to experts, because obviously they're quite easy to find because you, you mm-hmm. find an interesting academic paper and then you just look for that person's email. <laughs> um, what I'm talking about is more, oh, I was interested in finding somebody who'd had a vaginoplasty, for example, and speaking to them about their experience. Uh, And I remember I was able to do that fairly quickly because I found someone speaking about it on their personal YouTube. So I get in touch that way, spoke to her. Um, In other instances, I would be scrolling through Reddit forums. Sometimes I'd post on them saying, hey, I'm looking for this person. A lot of times scrolling through Facebook groups Mm -hmm. as well. So yeah, a lot of online digging around and uh, in many cases in multiple different languages trying to find um trying to find little vignettes of the larger social or sexual health issues that i was looking into yeah is there a conversation that struck you more than maybe some of the others that really affected you or that really yeah that really struck you a lot i mean (laughs) i spoke to kind of i would say the I had some very sort of fulfilling conversations with other women who maybe have been through things and gone through them. And those conversations were very, um, I don't know what the right word to use is. It, it, for me, it helped me um, really think about the concept of kind of sexual resilience quite hard, mm-hmm. which is something that I hope people leave losing it, feeling like they have yeah. more of, you know, after the reading experience. Um, But I definitely also spoke to a bunch of men who um, these were in the chapters around myths where where women are being harmed sort of very perniciously by Mm -hmm. certain myths that normally are connected to quite traditional, archaic, patriarchal gender norms or ideas, uh, including a surgeon who is very public about performing hymen repair operations, for example, 
or an, a man who was very proud to discuss with me that he'd had sex with over 100 virgins, stuff like that. Um, that those conversations won't ever leave me because yeah. they very much summarized uh, the, the reasoning behind why I wrote the book that I did to try and highlight a lot of these things that are happening that often get brushed under the carpet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, considering the fact that most of our listeners are university students, um, what's the one lesson about sex, gender, gender education, sex education that you wish you had had when you were in university that maybe without giving too much of the book away so they can go and read it that you would like our listeners to have when they listen to this interview? Uh, no one when I was at school or university or even after university really ever spoke to me about what happens when um, the sex you have isn't what you pictured in your head. And obviously when our sex ed's quite rubbish, it's quite mm -hmm. unlikely that we're actually prepared for sort of the reality of what, what sex can be and look like, yeah. which is very varied, very different and may include um, sexual dysfunction or sex going I don't want to say sort of you i mean sex going wrong in terms of func function functionally wrong um but these these are experiences that pretty much everyone goes through they're very common um they shouldn't be a big deal and if we spoke about them more they wouldn't be a big deal and it's because we don't talk about them that when they do happen we can find them to be crushing experiences we can feel so embarrassed that we never want to see the person again or we never go and see a medical professional about what happened so the first thing i would say is like if you think something's happened and you don't know how to deal with it i bet you it's actually something a lot of your mates are going through right now it's mm. something that lots of people have gone through before you um and it's something that can be dealt with and then the second thing i would say is just generally recognizing it, it can be quite an infuriating experience when you realize wow my sex ed really did fail me um it yeah. didn't prepare me um but use that frustration and anger for positivity so use that to incentivize yourself to do a bit of reading um you're probably going to have to um, look out for these information sources. They're not necessarily going to find you because of the way that our internet censors a lot of sex ed material. Um, but you know, you're an adult now. You don't have to rely on whatever your teacher was allowed to teach you in the classroom. You can have a look. Um, you can look up doctors who talk about these things, and you can read books, and you can you can give yourself the sex education your teenage self was denied. Um, so ultimately, this is it's it, be positive about it because um, that's how we make better sort of we craft better sexual futures for ourselves. Yeah, thank you so much. That's really insightful, and I think will be very useful to our listeners. Um, my last question is the one that I ask every single guest at the end of our episode. It's I know you've spoken about this a little bit on your social channels, but. If you had to give one piece of advice to someone who wanted to break into the media industry, and especially, I think, uh, in digital storytelling and digital reporting, what would be the one piece of advice that you would give them? The one piece of advice I would give is to just do it. So I have seen this advice being, I've seen this advice get given out to um, other creatives who are, you know, they're grown ups. They are people in their twenties and thirties working in the creative industries. And I think a lot of us 
we are creative enough to have an idea or have an ambition, but it's the the first step or giving something a go when we don't feel expert in it can mm. seem quite challenging. And you're never gonna get past it or move forward unless you actually just start doing it. The minute you start beginning a skill, that's how you start improving it. Um, the minute you start doing something, you start making mistakes in order for you to learn from them. You start figuring out actual practice as opposed to the theory you've probably taught and you know better questions to ask experts and mentors and you know better who you want to be your expert or mentor giving you advice. So that's the best piece of advice I could give. Yeah, yeah. just do it. Yeah, I totally agree the thing about finding your mentors and the people that you want to like credit as your experts and you want to look up to. Thank you so much for coming on to No More Questions and answering my questions. It was really fun to have you on. My pleasure. And one last thing, yeah. um, in case anyone is listening and they are really interested in sexual and reproductive health, uh, I've just launched a new project, yeah, which absolutely. is all about um, improving the improving information, the quality of information on sexual and reproductive health on Wikipedia. Um, we're very lucky to have Wikipedia, which is mm -hmm. one of the digital wonders of the world, um, a, a, an encyclopedia created by volunteers, uh, but it's not perfect. It is not necessarily, um, we know that the majority of editors are male, for example. We know that the majority of editors uh, will be based in um, likely quite privileged global minority yeah. societies. Uh, we know that there is an English language bias on there, for example, and Body Atlas is about translating lots of material that needs translating in this uh, particular health space. It's about um, improving the quality of articles in it. So, for example, not a single country page on like sort of local abortion mm -hmm. laws or histories meets the good article standards of Wikipedia. So it's this is a project for anyone who feels like they want to improve information for other people in their space. Um, I'll be running editathons on and offline throughout the following year. Um, so if anyone wants to get involved, you might be keen to improve your research skills, your writing, editing, or translation skills. Um, please get in touch. Yeah, thank you so much. I will definitely link, I know you've made an announcement about it, so I will definitely link it in the episode description for our listeners. Thank you so uh, much. Thank you. I have no more questions. I love talking to Sophia and I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation. As you just heard, the link to sign up and to learn more about Body Atlas is in the episode description, so you can go check that out now. <clears throat> I may have no more questions for today, but the little break that we're going to be having over the coming weeks is, and I guarantee you this, going to allow me to load up on questions and come back with so many more for your listening pleasure. I'm really excited for the last batch of episodes of Normal Questions first season, and I really hope you join me in this excitement. Stay tuned for the announcement of when our official comeback will be for episode 18, because as I've said before, I would never leave you on an odd number. Um, that will just not happen. And until then... And 18 won't be the last, but I won't leave you on an odd number. And until then, I have no more questions, and I hope neither do you. Thank you for your renewed time and interest in normal questions. And as always, I'll see you next time.